Here's a recent tweet from NPR listener at Susie Susson earlier this month. Quote, after downloading the NPR One app after being told to for the thousandth time by an NPR podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hashtag insert shamed face here. Okay, don't wait like Susie did. NPR One is ready and willing to make your long drives and house cleaning and post-holiday downtime better. Find NPR One, O-N-E, on your app store now. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with a roundup of political news from the holiday week. It's a week when the drama of the Trump transition really took no time off at all. I'm Sam Sanders, reporter. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. Okay, just the three of us here today, three bad hombres. That is because a lot of our colleagues are still out for the holidays and some vacation and some much-needed year-end self-care. What have you guys been doing to unwind this holiday season? I was hanging out in Lincoln, Nebraska for a few days. Are you, you're not from in Nebraska. No, but my wife is, so okay. hung out with the family in Lincoln. I like Lincoln. Sarah McCammon happened to be in Lincoln at the very same time, but we found this out after we'd both left Lincoln. Oh. So, Ron, <laughs> did you go somewhere for, the, for Christmas? Yes, I did. I was in the beautiful Puget Sound area. Wow. Uh, not in Seattle per se, but over on the west side of the Sound in the lovely town of Kingston, and I had a wonderful time. All right, so we have a lot to talk about today in our last episode of 2016. But first, a quick note on the programming of this podcast. We'll return next week to our regular schedule of weekly roundups on Thursday evening and shorter episodes earlier in the week on Monday or Tuesday. Plus, topical stuff whenever we can make it into the booth to talk about big news. All right? All right. All right. Mm -hmm. So. We'll talk about Israel in a moment. First, let's get to some news from early this evening. President-elect Trump's team spent the day previewing some big economic announcement. That announcement is actually why this podcast is a bit later than we initially planned. But tonight around 5 p.m. Eastern time, Trump spoke to press at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Scott, what did he say? So this was interesting because early in the morning, uh, every day, Trump's transition has a call kind of saying, here's what's going to happen today. His uh, White House press secretary, uh, Sean Spicer, says, here's who he's met with. Here's what's happened next. And today they said, we're going to have a big economic announcement this afternoon. That's all they said. So we were sitting around waiting to hear what Trump was going to say, whether he was going to speak kind of broadly about the fact the economy is doing well because we've seen... Trump take a lot of credit for that lately, saying the economy is doing well because I'm about to be president, even though these are all really long-term trends that we're seeing. So anyway, we're waiting, and and here's what Trump came out to say at Mar-a-Lago. So we just had some very good news because of what's happening and the spirit and the hope. Uh, I was just called by the head people at Sprint, and they're going to be bringing 5,000 jobs back to the United States. They're taking them from other countries. They're bringing them back to the United States. And Massa and some other people were very much involved in that, so I want to thank them. And also OneWeb, a new company, is going to be hiring 3,000 people. So that's very exciting. So we have a combination of Sprint for 5,000 jobs. So yeah, 5,000 jobs from from Sprint and uh, Massa, who he said there, he's talking about a Japanese tech mogul named Masayoshi Sun, um, who Trump actually appeared with at Trump Tower a couple weeks ago. They came out of the elevators and Trump announced that that Sun was promising to invest 50,000 jobs in the United States through his company SoftBank, which is a majority owner of Sprint and also this this other company uh, Trump mentioned. OneWeb. OneWeb. Yeah. So, so this is interesting. And this is the latest example of Trump kind of 
doing a one-off dog and pony show with a company saying, hey, I just met with this company, yeah. and they promised me that they're going to do this, which is not something that you see uh, presidents come out and do in a one-off way like yeah. this. Well, this... there was Carrier in Indiana, and now this. Yeah, and this is the type of thing that you see mayors and governors do all the time. Uh, get really involved with in the weeds financial deals, uh, offering you know tax benefits, tax credits, uh, promising to do X or Y for a company to make a promise to build more jobs. And it looks like that's what Trump's going to do as president. Ron, like, what does this mean for the big plate of responsibilities that Donald Trump inherits? Is it possible to be effective? in all these different realms and still be concerned with the minutia of some deals like this. This is a president who is clearly going to want to have deliverables for the people who voted for him. And many of the people who voted for him around the country are folks who have lost their jobs or feel insecure in their jobs because of the offshoring of industry and particularly in manufacturing, but in many, many fields. So all these folks who have had a lot of their economic hope and aspiration undercut in recent years voted for Donald Trump in the belief that he would deliver jobs. Now, this gives him a chance to say in concrete terms, companies you've heard of like Sprint are moving their jobs back to the United States because of me. And that means that you voted for the right guy and I'm going to make America great again. And I think that's really smart, actually. I think it's really politically smart. It gives voters a specific thing in their minds. Because I think, you know, the flip side of this is the economy is doing well and President Obama is saying the economy was horrific when I took office. We were in the midst of the worst recession since the Great Depression and I brought you back. But it was always hard for Obama to make that sales because he was talking theoretically about a thing that didn't happen. Or he was talking about very large numbers of jobs, 170,000 in a month, 200,000 in a month. And that doesn't really translate to what people relate to. But that's, more, jo- but that's more jobs than 5,000. It is, of but it was big it picture and it was removed, you know? Of course it is. But of course, that is an aggregate figure for the nation as a whole. It doesn't mean anything to the individual who's looking for a job. Whereas this kind of example can immediately create the expectation that a company like Sprint might be coming to my town or a factory might be coming back to my town because of Donald Trump. Now, questions soon arise once Trump announces these deals. After the Carrier deal was announced a few weeks ago, some folks at Carrier, a union rep from Carrier, said, hold up, this deal isn't as sweet as it seems. Mm -hmm. How likely are we to hear different things in the details over time. So so Sprint actually did put out an independent statement, but it was a little vague and it made it clear that they are just beginning the process. Uh, they used the uh, corporate press release speak here saying it as, the company anticipates these jobs will support a variety of functions across the organization and they're going to begin discussions immediately with its business partners. So begin discussions was the key phrase to me. This is not a done deal yet. But Sprint did uh, really uh, praise Donald Trump here, saying this is their CEO. We're excited to work with President-elect Trump and his administration to do our part to drive economic growth and create jobs in the U.S. But you know what? If I'm a PR person at a big company and we're about to expand anyway or we're about to open a new plant or we're about to do anything, I'd be in touch with uh, Donald Trump's transition team so that you can get the president of the United States to give you a big PR boost and announce your jobs. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's get to another story of this week. What happened at the United Nations Security Council just before Christmas? For those who have not been keeping up, here's a little primer. If you were in Model UN, you know all this. Were you? Ron was in Model UN. Oh, yeah. yeah. Scott, were you? A little bit. Not not a lot. (laughs) 
Okay, I was not. Anyway, the UN Security Council was created in the aftermath of World War II to help maintain world peace. It's made up of 15 countries. Only five of those countries are permanent members, Russia, China, France, the UK, and the U.S., any one of those five countries can veto proposals made by the council. So let's talk about a resolution that the U.N. Security Council approved last week. This was one to condemn Israeli settlements. That's right. To, to say that Israel has no right to be building settlements in the West Bank, disputed territory, occupied territory, whatever you want to call it. And uh, this is one of the long-running irritants in the entire Israeli-Palestinian suffering over these many decades, back to 1947, 1948, uh, when the uh, Israeli was created. And this is something that the United States has stood steadfast with Israel over saying, all right, we don't want you to have settlements there in that territory. Please don't do that. But we're not going to allow the United Nations to outright condemn it through the Security Council because that's just too harsh. And we are your steadfast ally. We are the people who provide $38 billion in foreign aid for you. We have stood by you through all these many, many wars. And we don't want to pass something through the UN that sounds quite so harsh as that. So we will cast our no vote, which is in effect a veto on the Security Council, and stop it. And we have done so again and again. As recently as 2011, the Obama administration vetoed something very much like this. But finally here in the last days, the waning weeks of the Obama administration, the president and the secretary of state, John Kerry, finally said, look, we have to register our deep displeasure with the way these settlements just keep expanding. There are 130 of them now. They're gaining in population. They've gone up 100,000 in the last several years. There are more and more people there. You are in effect taking over this territory, making it part of Israel. And the reason this all matters is because this is land that would be up for negotiation in some sort of eventual two-state solution, which uh, for the last 20 years or so has been the stance that the United States government has uh, has pushed for, saying that uh, we need to get to some sort of point where there's uh, a Palestinian state and an Israeli state and some sort of land exchanges and carving out of a, of, a, of a different country. Of course, those peace talks have really, really stalled and been derailed and kind of been basically non-existent the last few years. John Kerry has tried really hard to get that going again, but it just hasn't been happening. But yeah. And, you know, to point out Donald Trump's pick for the next U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, he is publicly against a two-state solution, and he has supported financially these settlements. Not just saying I'm for them, like actually giving money to them. Yeah, that's right. And also uh, Jason Greenblatt, who is going to be a special advisor to the administration negotiating in international relations, economic, military, national security, uh, is uh, also a big supporter. And this all dovetails perfectly with the stances that have been taken by the regime of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has a very, very difficult political situation of his own to deal with, as John Kerry alluded to today. The coalition that keeps him in power is composed of more political groups, including outright parties, that are strictly one-state solution and are constantly pressuring him not to say anything about a two-state solution, so he's caught between the rock and the hard place. Let's dig deeper into what Kerry said today in this speech in D.C. He said today, quote, let's be clear, settlement expansion has nothing to do with Israel's security. He went on to say, quote, friends need to tell each other the hard truths. Then he said that if Israel keeps annexing Palestinian territory, quote, it can be Jewish or democratic, but it can't be both. President Obama and I know that the incoming administration has signaled that they may take a different path. 
and even suggested breaking from the long-standing U.S. policies on settlements, Jerusalem, and the possibility of a two-state solution. That is for them to decide. That's how we work. But we cannot, in good conscience, do nothing and say nothing when we see the hope of peace slipping away. This is a time to stand up for what is right. We have long known what two states living side by side in peace and security looks like. We should not be afraid to say so. Strong words to Israel, but got to also point out that in September of this year, the U.S. finalized the deal to give Israel $38 billion in military aid over 10 years, largest deal of its kind ever. There's this symbolic beef happening that we hear Kerry talk about in the backdrop of us in Israel still being really big allies of each other. Well, that's right. And both the elements we're talking about here, the disagreements about the negotiation towards a peace deal and the aid package, which is military aid, are about keeping Israel secure, keeping Israel safe. In the short run, they have to keep their military strong. In the long run, somehow they have to work out a relationship with their neighbors. And that is going to depend on whether or not they and their neighbors can come to a table and make mutual sacrifices. But here's, in the whole thing that happened the last few weeks with the UN vote, here's what I'm confused about. It's not like any major countries changed their position on these settlements. It's not like they were okay with the settlements and then suddenly they weren't. And to it, clarify, 14 of the 15 nations voted for the resolution to condemn settlements. The and US, we just took a pass. We chose yes, not to block exactly. it. But that has been basically the global community stance on this for so long on the diplomatic side. And there have been so many warnings to Israel as they've continued to go down a different path. It seemed like none of this was new, and yet it's being kind of hashed out like this was this really groundbreaking shift. But what did feel new to me was this kind of back-channel diplomacy that Donald Trump was engaged in before the resolution had a vote. Mm -hmm. We're hearing reports now that Netanyahu urged Trump to get involved, try to stop this. We know that Trump called Egypt's president, and about two hours after that phone call, Egypt postponed this vote. Um, We've now had top-level people from Israel saying that they have evidence that the U.S. colluded to make this whole thing happen. It's It seems really messy, and the fact that a president-elect was involved in this at all before he takes office, that strikes me as a bit unprecedented. But it's Trumpian. It's what we've come to expect from Donald Trump, who is an unpredictable fellow, and we shouldn't always expect him to do what we expect from him, but he does these kinds of things. He does not respect the usual protocol. We'll have to assume he won't respect it uh, when he's in office. He's going to do things his own way. But I think it's worth pointing out here that this is essentially Israel against the world, and we We have stood with them with respect to the U.N. Security Council, telling them stop it with the settlements for decades and decades and decades. They continue to expand them. They continue to have and encourage more people to live there. It's still a hot-button issue that Netanyahu has to yield to in his own country. And so for us to just continually say we're against the settlements, but hey, if it comes to the Security Council, we'll back you up and veto the resolution, that essentially undercuts our position, the position of all the other countries on the Security Council, including Great Britain, and France and Russia and China and all the other countries that rotate on the Security Council year after year, decade after decade, everybody agreeing except us standing with Israel. And so this time, as a shot across the bow, on their way out, the Obama administration said, no, 
The one other layer I think we should throw in here is even though this is kind of an international diplomatically one-sided issue in terms of how the U.N. Security Council viewed this, when it comes to domestic politics in the U.S., many more lawmakers and politicians agree with Donald Trump than Barack Obama Trump's on this. Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, no, agreed St- with Trump on this. Denny Hoyer, yeah. the minority leader in the in the House. Look there. And Pelosi, too. I think I was looking for somebody issuing a statement, you know, approving of what the U.S. did. And, and Dianne Feinstein is the only one I could see. There, there might have been a few other ones, but across the board, leaders from both parties were, were dismissing this. And, and that has been the consensus back generations, back as far as Israel has existed, that we would defend them in the United Nations just as we defend them against military attacks over their borders. Yeah. This morning, Donald Trump tweeted, We cannot continue to let Israel be treated with such total disdain and disrespect. They used to have a great friend in the U.S., but not anymore. The beginning of the end was the horrible Iran deal. And now this, in parentheses, UN, stay strong, Israel. January 20th is fast approaching. After that... One of Trump's tweets on Israel was retweeted by Netanyahu with a note of thanks to Trump. Ron, is it fair to say that Obama has had more strained relationships with Netanyahu than any other head of state that he's had to deal with uh, over the last eight years, or, or, or definitely among any head of state that we're allies with? <laughs> That's right. I mean, Vladimir Putin would be the other one that came to mind, yeah. and they're more courteous to each other in some respects than the exchange of, of words and gestures that we've seen between uh, Netanyahu and Obama in recent years. Let's, let's remember that Netanyahu actually came over to the United States and gave a speech to a joint session of Congress condemning in very vigorous terms the United States deal with Iran on nukes. And this is something that's been really just boiling away and getting worse and worse. And we have both the situation with the settlements and the situation with the Iran deal. And we have the very wide open arms ready to embrace Netanyahu and all of his people that we are getting from the new Trump administration. So all of those things put together and what we heard today from Kerry sounded very much like an epitaph for the two-state solution. Okay, time for a break. Support for NPR and the following message come from LearnVest, an online financial advice company that believes you should focus the same attention you give to the health of your mind and body to your finances. It's wellness for your wallet. Get a $50 credit when you sign up today or go to LearnVest.com politics. Before we get back to the show, I just want to remind you that many more NPR podcasts are waiting for you when you need something new to listen to. Code Switch, Embedded, Hidden Brain, and our own little show, and more, have all popped up on Best of Year End List from iTunes, The New York Times, Vulture, and more. Browse NPR's entire podcast catalog on the NPR One app, or visit npr.org slash podcast. All right, back to the show. All right, we are back. We were just talking about Israel. That is not the only issue the president-elect has been talking about over the holiday break. He has been on something of a Twitter tear recently. Uh, He tweeted about something President Obama said on David Axelrod's podcast. Axelrod is a former advisor of the president's and a personal friend. Anyway, there were reports of Obama claiming that he could have beaten Trump if he had run again this year. Here's what Obama actually said with some context. Um, Axelrod was asking Obama whether his message of hope and change from his 08 campaign uh, could still be resonant today. This answer is about a minute and a half long. Two points I would make, though, David, because obviously uh, in the wake of uh, uh, the election and Trump winning, uh, uh, a lot of people have, have 
um, suggested that somehow it really was a fantasy. What, what I would argue is, is that the culture actually did shift, that the majority does buy into uh, the notion of uh, a, a, a one America that is tolerant and diverse and uh, open and, uh, and, and, and full of energy and dynamism. And, uh, and the problem is it doesn't always manifest itself in politics, right? Uh, you know, I, I am confident in this vision because I'm confident that if I uh, if I had run again and articulated it, I think I could have mobilized a majority of the American people to rally behind it. I know that in conversations that I've had with um, people around the country, even some people who disagreed with me, uh, they would say the vision, the direction that you point towards is the right one. I don't think he should have said that. I think that, like... If he is trying to be as graceful and respectful and as helpful to the incoming president as possible and respectful to the legacy of his one-time opponent, Hillary Clinton, comments like those aren't helping. And it's also there's no way to disprove it. You know, it's just like yeah. a hypothetical world. Yeah. Yeah. The more interesting question to me is whether or not he's right. Uh, I think that the, this was a change election year. It was a year when a lot of people were dissatisfied, including six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know exactly how many million people who had voted for Obama in 2008 and maybe twice uh, were looking for change, didn't see it in Hillary Clinton, decided they would go with the other guy, Donald Trump, who had his appeal. And so would those same people have gone for that same appeal if they could have endorsed Barack Obama, whose approval rating in the polls is well over 50 percent, well over the reelection rate for presidents who run for reelection and higher than it was when he was reelected in 2012? It's also it's it's. It seems like it could be more salt on the wounds for a lot of liberals that have been asking, what if since the day Hillary lost? Mm-hmm. What if Bernie? What if Biden? What like, why is Obama adding fuel to that what if fire? And, and I think you know, the, the one thing that I thought about is how similar things are to 2000 at the moment where you have a really charismatic, relatively popular person who's term limited and can't run again. Uh, somebody tries to run to continue their legacy who's who's very wonky and not the best connector and they lose in a controversial way while winning the popular vote and and kind of liberals all over the place freak out and play the what if game. But the difference here and when Trump responded to Obama with this on Twitter and he pointed out the difference is that Bill Clinton was totally sidelined for the 2000 election. Yeah. But Barack Obama was campaigning all over the place was in Florida and North Carolina and Ohio specifically. Yeah. Hillary Clinton lost all those states. Donald Trump, of course, responded to these Obama comments. He tweeted, quote, doing my best to disregard the many inflammatory President O statements and roadblocks. Thought it was going to be a smooth transition, hyphen, all caps, not. I love that not right there. That's a thank, throwback. Let's throw a line for a bit. Thank you, Wayne's World. <laughs> you know, um, we should note here, uh, late breaking as we're taping, Trump was asked outside Mar-a-Lago today about this tweet. Uh, he's really off mic, but uh, take a listen to what he had to say. So he's being asked there, is the transition going smoothly? And he says, very good, very smoothly. Don't you think so? So 9 a.m. on Twitter, things are going great. Not in real life. 
No, not. Yet again, real-life Donald Trump saying one thing at real Donald Trump on Twitter saying something completely different. How do you, you don't think so? You don't think that you don't think the transition is going well? That's the way he well, fired back. Well, I heard from a good source that it wasn't. You know, uh, you don't think so? How do we as journalists cover this? I mean, like it's it is it is it 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 can tie your brain in circles. To some degree, we are all stuck with the C-SPAN approach, which is just show it all. Just show it all. Just run the cameras. The genius of C-SPAN, if you will, was that they were not trying to analyze things and tell you what to think about it or give you a context for it. They were showing you what was going on in Washington or out on the campaign trail. And to some degree, we are all obligated, especially at this juncture, to just show people their new president as he transists from being a candidate to being their new president. And I think you have to put the context in very quickly. You know, but he what, tweeted this, but he tweeted that before, and that met, doesn't mesh with what he said here, and here's why it matters. can't even get, like, context. I mean, it's just, yeah. like, me as a reporter covering this, doesn't he run the risk of potentially turning off a lot of voters, a lot of Americans, when he seems to be not just erratic and not just contradictory, but in a certain way just not truthful. Well, okay, you're calling it erratic and un- and 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 uh, inconsistent and not truthful, and I think a lot of people are relating to it as uh, kind of a breath of fresh air. I'm talking about Trump voters now, not people who don't like Donald Trump, but people who had made the decision to put some faith in Donald Trump, even if it was only a decision between him and Hillary Clinton. They put some faith in Donald Trump and they don't want to have it taken away. So he's unpredictable. Maybe that's good. He's unconventional. He's playing it by ear. Maybe that's good. Maybe all the policy that we've had made by the professionals and the practiced people and the experienced politicians has not worked, or at least it hasn't worked for me. And maybe what Donald Trump is doing, different as it is, will succeed largely because it's so different. Yeah. But I really want to talk about the very important thing. Which is? The not comment. <laughs> the throwback. Uh, it, I was like, wow, I have not seen someone say not in probably 20 years. So I tweeted, what What was the equivalent of him using a not joke? Like, what, what was an equivalent insult from that era? Uh, the common response was psych. I love psych. Two other ones. Um, a talk to the hand. Love talk to the mm-hmm. hand because the face mm-hmm. don't understand. And and Trump could have just thrown a yo mama joke at, at Obama. See, and that, that's all from that era, oh, I yeah. feel like. of My favorite from the era is Homie Don't Play That or Dat. Dat. Um, also, As If. Did you say As If? Damon Wayans? As If. I didn't. I didn't okay. say it, but as I knew a lot of people did. From Clueless fame, that's right. right. As if it's Clueless, but uh, it's Damon Wayans who really Damon Wayans popularized Homie Don't Play That. Homie Don't Play That. You know. We're all joking about not and psych and whatever, but the serious point of all of this is that Donald Trump's tweets, and he tweets a lot, they are having and they're going to have real effects. And we're entering this era where we might learn more from Donald Trump and his administration from his tweets than from his staff or press conferences or statements. He hasn't had a press conference in five months. So tweets are what we're relying on. One more thing that Trump has been tweeting about is nuclear weapons. Um, In a tweet on December 22nd, Trump wrote, quote, the United States must greatly strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until such time as the world comes to its senses regarding nukes. Then Trump suggested that it would be just fine if other countries began to expand their nuclear capabilities. In a statement that was read on MSNBC's Morning Joe, Trump said, quote, let it be an arms race. We will outmatch them at every pass 
and outlast them all. That is in direct defiance of the last few decades of global nuclear weapon policy, right? And in fact, one of the only things that the Obama administration and Russia were able to successfully agree on was a new treaty continuing this decades-long trend of de-escalating with nuclear weapons, uh, lowering the warheads. Uh, Yeah, this kind of freaked everybody out, just in terms of the national security community, nuclear weapons experts. I read a lot of articles about how strategic and diplomatic presidents are when they talk about nuclear capabilities, when they talk about making changes to them. Every word is carefully analyzed because other nuclear countries are looking at what we're doing, trying to figure out and responding accordingly. So Mm -hmm. to just say, yeah, you know, let's all go for it. Let's have a nuclear arms race, I think. A lot of people have no idea how that's going to play out. Now, Sean Spicer, who's going to be Trump's press secretary in the White House, uh, he responded to that tweet on NBC. The point that he was making was very clear. Other countries, whether it's Russia or China or others, that want to threaten U.S. safety are not going to sit back and allow this country to, to not act. But if there's going to be an arms race, There's not so going be to be. I'm just what he but, says. But here's so my point. It, we will match but, but them at every turn. But there's not going to be because he's going to ensure that other countries get the message that he's not going to sit back and allow that. And what's going to happen is they will come to their senses and we will all be just fine. This all goes back and This is a subject that over the years since World War II, people have, generally speaking, discussed carefully. Because the destructive power of these weapons, as we saw in President Obama's visit to Hiroshima, this is beyond anything else that humankind has ever had at its disposal. And we aren't talking anymore about Hiroshima or Nagasaki-sized bombs. We're talking about much, much larger bombs, and Donald Trump does understand that. There's an interview from last spring in which he made clear he realized just how powerful these weapons are now and that we already have more than enough to obliterate the populations of any countries around the world we felt threatened by. So the real threat has been perceived as being places like North Korea or Iran or Pakistan or India. Pakistan and India got nuclear weapons. Nothing's happened with those yet, but people always worry about it. We also worry about somebody getting their hands on some sort of nuclear device that's not a state. That's not an organized military, but some sort of terrorist organization that somehow manages to procure a nuclear device that, while it wouldn't be as big as our biggest bombs, would be big enough to decimate a city. So all of those things have been discussed in the most controlled and grave terms, and we are surely going to have other conundra in the future about people having nuclear weapons. But this kind of talk with this kind of seeming carelessness Uh, that's disturbing to people. I kind of feel like this is one of these topics that's so out of your hands on a day-to-day basis that kind of the maybe not responsible but kind of like logical approach is to just totally ignore it. But um, our colleague Elise Hugh, who is uh, NPR's South Korea uh, bureau chief and has done a lot of coverage of North Korea's kind of nuclear threats and growing, has done a lot of stories and just kind of how unstable this entire world is. And she recommends a book uh, by William Perry, who used to be defense secretary, called My Journey at the Nuclear Brink. She says that's a really good book to read to kind of understand just how sketchy the situation is all across the world. Something to sober you up. Yeah. (laughs) For the holidays. Okay. Um, And a sidebar to this story, the same day as this nuclear arms race news was happening, the Trump team released a letter uh, from Russian President Vladimir Putin Uh, They also released a statement with that letter, Scott. Yeah, so this is what Trump said. Uh, A very nice letter from Vladimir Putin. His thoughts are so correct. 
I hope both sides are able to live up to these thoughts, and we do not have to travel an alternate path. Thoughts and paths. And here's here's the letter itself. Um, I hope that this is from Putin to Trump. I hope that after you assume the position of president of the United States of America, we will be able, by acting in a constructive and pragmatic manner, to take real steps to restore the framework of bilateral cooperation in different areas, as well as bring our level of collaboration on the international scene to a qualitatively new level. There are lots of things about this that are kind of confusing to it's me. It's a word but my Yeah, but my first question is, why are the two of these men so public with the letters and statements? I mean, like... An incoming president has phone calls with lots of world leaders. They don't have a letter and a statement about all of them, right? There might have been congratulatory telegrams and that sort of thing in the past, even from people that were quite hostile uh, to the new president, always with that hope for better relations in the future. Perhaps you will see reason, which your predecessors simply would not. Uh, Certainly, we've seen just this kind of footsie being played back and forth with Netanyahu. So it's a little disconcerting to see it with Vladimir Putin, who many members of the Senate and certainly prominently John McCain and Lindsey Graham have described as a thug, as a criminal, as a killer, as a murderer of journalists, as a murderer of political opponents, uh, to see this kind of coziness in that relationship, even if it's false, all right, even if it is an act on both sides, it's uh, disturbing to a lot of people in the United States who are not accustomed to this kind of talk about the Soviet Union. (laughs) Jeez. I guess what I'm saying is it's disturbing to a lot of people in the United States who remember the Soviet Union and don't feel that Russia under Vladimir Putin is all that different. And Putin has loomed so large uh, in the, over the entire transition period. I mean, there are the real intelligence community concerns that Russia played a direct role in trying to mess with the election through through the hacking of the DNC and John Podesta. There is the real political dynamic that uh, Democrats have seized on that and Trump's unwillingness to accept it as a way in their minds to kind of undermine the Trump presidency before it begins, kind of painting him as a stooge of Russia. And there's the things that Trump has continued to say, saying that he wants to have a good relationship with Vladimir Putin. He's talked before about uh, countries not interfering in each other's internal affairs. That's the way that that Putin framed it to Trump when they when they talk and they release the uh, the kind of readout of their call. And you have all that going on. John McCain is actually in Eastern Europe this week going around to NATO allies saying, you know, we're going to continue to back you if if Russia tries to invade or, or mess with you, despite what you may hear from the incoming administration. Final tidbit really quick. In other news, Donald Trump this past week on Twitter again, he announced that he would be shutting down the Donald J. Trump Foundation. But as soon as that announcement was made, the office of the New York Attorney General said that he cannot legally do that because the AG's office is still investigating that foundation. What's up with this guy? Yeah, the foundation was kind of an ongoing storyline all campaign, especially due to a really excellent investigative reporting done by The Washington Post. Digging into this foundation, the fact that Donald Trump had not donated to it himself for years and the fact that he had seemingly broken a lot of, of tax rules about how foundations spend their money by buying, among other things, big oil portraits of himself with foundation proceeds and also using foundation money to settle personal business-related lawsuits. So Trump said in this statement that he was shutting down the foundation to, quote, avoid even the appearance of any conflict with my role as president. But got to point out, the big conflicts 
probably aren't going to lie with that foundation, which is really small potatoes compared to all of his business dealings throughout the world. And he still has yet to have that press conference where he details how he'll handle that. He's refused to use a blind trust, as previous presidents have used before. And three of his adult children seem to be straddling the fence between his business dealings and advising him as president. The foundation is not the focus of the conflict of interest. It's really a sidebar story. And closing it down as a way to tell people, okay, everything's fine now. I closed down the DJT Foundation is is, is simply not even a full smokescreen. It is interesting to me that the starting point that Trump had on all the conflict of interest stuff is that this wasn't going to be a problem, that he could do whatever he wanted, that legally the president could do what he wanted. And since then, even though we are waiting for the full details, they have really kind of retreated and do seem to realize that conflicts of interest could be a major political problem. And you're seeing them try to figure this out, and you're seeing the Trump organization cancel deals, international deals that that weren't quite complete yet, but we're getting to the finish line. So it seems like uh, whether or not they go as far as ethics experts say, which would be total liquidation of the organization and putting that money into a blind trust, Trump's world does seem to realize that they need to do something and that uh, people will be seriously concerned about these conflicts of interest otherwise. All right, time for one more quick break. We'll be right back with Can't Let It Go. Support for NPR and the following message come from LearnVest, an online financial advice company that believes you should focus the same attention you give to the health of your mind and body to your finances. It's wellness for your wallet. Get a $50 credit when you sign up today or go to learnvest.com slash politics. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Care.com, who wants you to know that if you paid $2,000 or more a year for a nanny, then you're responsible for nanny taxes. Care.com slash homepay is a comprehensive resource for busy families that can handle all of your employer payroll obligations, from setting up automatic payments to preparing tax returns. Go to care.com slash homepay to learn more and get a free consultation. All right, we are back next week. We'll get back to our regular schedule and we'll try to answer some of your questions. Make sure to keep sending those questions to us at nprpolitics at npr.org. But now it's time for the final time in 2016 for Can't Let It Go, when we all share one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise, Ron. You're first. I'll go with Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Uh, President Obama and the Japanese Prime Minister Abe uh, were both in Honolulu, and they were both at Pearl Harbor for the memorial service. Of course, the 75th anniversary of that attack that began American participation in World War II was actually earlier this month on December 7th, uh, but they scheduled this particular commemoration so that both of the national leaders could be there. It was moving. There were still some survivors who were present. There were many, many more of the victims who were present in the sense that the memorial is right there over the USS Arizona, which has never been raised. So it was a reminder in this moment of uncertainty and parlous times and everyone looking forward with a certain amount of anxiety of how much we have survived in our past and how much things can change overnight. I also just looking at the visuals of Abe and our president together at Pearl Harbor this week, I can't imagine any moment like that in the future to honor the Twin Towers falling because it was an act that was carried out by non-state actors and it just showed how much 
global warfare has changed since that time. That is true. That is another way in which these are quite different monuments, milestones, if you will, in our history. All right. So I'm going to go next. Um, I've actually spent the last few days working on an essay looking at whether or not 2016 was actually the worst. I have many thoughts. It should be out later this week. But one of the things that I wanted to dig into was the seeming frequency of celebrity death this year. We have seen so many celebrities and icons pass away. Big names among those, uh, David Bowie, Prince, Leonard Cohen, etc. list goes on and on and on. Um, the BBC had an interesting article out about a week ago kind of looking at how deaths of celebrities this year compared to previous years. And they actually found that they have run more obits in this year. And they said that there have been more celebrity deaths this year than last. They said overall, and this was according to numbers they had tallied on December 16th, Overall, this year, 30% more celebrity deaths than last year by looking at their obit numbers. And the first three months of 2016 had double the number of celebrity deaths compared to the first three months of 2015. Does this mean we have more celebrities in the last 50 years? So their argument uh, towards the end of the essay, they say this is part of the wave of death of celebrities that came to prominence in the 60s and after. Mm. They argue that the 60s were this kind of opening up of the popular culture. And after that period of time, there were just more celebrities. Yeah, And some of the people who died this year were were titans who clearly shaped the 20th century, people like Muhammad Ali and Fidel Castro. And when they died, you saw in the coverage uh, stories and packages that had been written over the course of decades and were just so deep and immersive and kind of took you back through history. But but other other deaths like Prince were totally unexpected. And it's not like, you know, everybody saw that coming and were kind of putting together thoughtful coverage. It, it was a lot more shocking. We may have more famous people, particularly in the sense of cultural fame. Oh, yeah. We just have more people because we have so many more media and we have so many more ways of accessing it. And so instead of just trying to squeeze into three television networks and a couple, three uh, record companies, uh, people can explode through the Internet and be famous, maybe not for 20, 30 years, but be famous enough that uh, they endure. And when they do pass, they are news stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still got to say... I'm kind of still processing Prince's death. Like that one was the one for me this year. Because yeah. like you were saying, Scott, people didn't see it coming. And he just did so much for so long and kind of changed the way that we look at what it means to be a rock star or a pop star or a black musician or so many things. There were a lot of people that died this year that, that made me like personally sad and I felt like I had a personal connection to oh, them. Yeah. But at the same time, I have come to hate with a passion social media the instant a famous person dies. It just spirals into this like self-absorbed you know, that time I met that person or this time yeah. or like people topping each other and I feel like Robin Williams when he died a couple of years ago that was the first time that to me it just kind of became about people reacting to it as opposed to the death itself and I don't want to critique how people process things like that because everyone does it differently but to me just when I see someone that I care about uh, who was notable died I now just kind of like get away from the internet for a little oh, bit and, I, that's, and I just kind of I do the opposite. Yeah. I like dig in and I'll tweet the sad tweets and I'll read the sad tweets. I don't know. It's it is weird cuz like you get caught up in this public mourning, very public mourning yeah. for people that you never actually personally knew. Well, when it's it starts to feel competitive, that's when it rubs that me is the wrong when way. That's right. Yeah. And it, I like Prince more than you, you it's, know. It's, like, it's, uh, it's, it's, I was the original fan of, you know, Glenn Frey or whomever. Yeah. And and some of it goes to the point where people are trying so hard to identify with this famous past person that uh, you know, it's like a posthumous selfie. Yeah. Yeah. 
Scott, what you got? On that note, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, obviously, we've uh, talked a lot about Star Wars on the podcast over the past year or so. You have not. I have. You have not. Um, <laughs> Tam is a big fan. I'm a big fan as well. And and what you were just talking about, Sam, the fact that Carrie Fisher died uh, this week was was just kind of just a sad moment. Um, and what I wanted to say actually has directly to do with the ending of the Star Wars movie that came out a couple of weeks ago. Rogue so one. We should spoiler alert that. If you haven't seen it yet, uh, why don't you skip ahead about a minute or so. But um, I went and saw it a couple nights ago. And at the very end, there's a, there's an appearance by uh, a CGI Carrie Fisher playing Princess Leia. And it kind of takes you right up to the beginning of the original Star Wars movie. And it was kind of controversial because they're basically... It wasn't the smoothest CGI thing. But, but seeing that, knowing that she just had a heart attack and that she was in a really bad spot, kind of I was really like emotionally moved by that and really touched by that at the end of the movie. And it was just like a really powerful image. And then to have her die the next day was just very sad. And I was actually texting with Tam about the movie and what we thought about it. And she's the one who said, oh, I just saw that, I just saw that she died. So yeah. that, was, that was sad. But, you know, she was... She was a great actor in that movie and so many other things. And just over the course of her life, kind of being an advocate for mental health, among other things, I think she really kind of carved a lot of paths. And she had a career that was more than just acting. Yeah. She was a celebrated author of a few books. And she was brought in to work on movie scripts. Like, she helped fix the script of The Wedding Singer amongst, you know, some other things. Sister act. Yeah. Yeah. She was actually well known for being somebody who could come in and say, well, all right, this isn't working, but what if we did this and what if we did that and write a few lines here and there? Sometimes that can take a long time. Sometimes it can be done in a matter of hours when you bring in a fresh pair of eyes and somebody who's got the sensibility to do it. Yeah. So, yeah, we lost a lot of great people in 2016. Carrie Fisher, definitely one of them. On that note, that is it for this episode. As we mentioned, we'll be back to our regular schedule next week. Weekly Roundup on Thursday evenings, a shorter episode on Monday or Tuesday. If you like the show, please do us a favor and leave a review on iTunes, or do us a bigger favor and donate to your local public radio station. You can go to npr.org slash stations, find your station, donate, and tell them we sent you. That helps us do our job. All right, one last thing. It's our final episode of the year. just want to say thank you to all of you for listening this year. From all of us here at the podcast, the three of us here in the booth, but also from Tamara Keith, Domenico Montanaro, Susan Davis, Danielle Kurtzleben, Sarah McCammon, Asma Khalid, Scott Horsley, our producer Brent Bachman, our fact checker Barbara Sprunt, our fearless editors Shirley Henry, Mathani Maturi, and Beth Donovan. Thank you from all of us for listening to the show this year. Especially thanks to Stanley in Iowa who mailed us homemade NPR Politics podcast Christmas cards this week. Also to everyone that mails this stuff. I've kind of like stopped tweeting about it because I don't want to like make people think that they should send us stuff. Mm -hmm. But we get all the cards and the things and we really appreciate it. And we eat all. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All right. Happy New Year, everybody. Enjoy your loved ones and may 2017 be awesome and better. There you go. I'm Sam Sanders, reporter. I'm Scott Dattrell. I cover Congress. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.